Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of Credit Crunch, part of the Fick Focus podcast series. Brought to you by the Fixed Strategy Research Team here at Bloomberg. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me is colleague Sam Geyer. Uh, before diving in, a little public service announcement. Your support, of course, helps us to keep bringing great guests and content to you. So if you haven't already, please do take a moment to follow, rate, comment, and of course, share. Today, we take the transatlantic journey across the pond, virtually, of course, to talk all-weather investing with Alice Cavalier and David Brooks. Alice and David are the co-heads of the Capital Solutions Strategy Group over at Arkmont Asset Management. Arkmont is focused on the European market and was acquired by Naveen back in October of 2022. Alice, David, welcome to Credit Crunch. Thank you very much. So before we delve into Capital Solutions Group and exactly what that means and the various investment and lending strategies that underpin it, Maybe uh, uh, you guys can maybe give us a quick history on Arkmont, which, uh, if I recall from our conversation earlier, has its roots back in Blue Bay, and then how each of you sort of came to join the firm. Fantastic. Yeah. So Arkmont, as you've said, is is a leading European private debt firm. Um, how, how we fit in is um, we were originally Blue Bay private debt. Uh, that's actually before Alice and my time. Uh, but between 2011 and 2019, we were part of that asset manager. Uh, we then underwent an MBO uh, backed by Dial Capital Partners, or, or Blue Owl, as they're now called. And we spent a brief period of time as an independent firm. And then, as you said, there was a, a deal announced with Naveen in October last year. It actually closed in March this year that sees us become part of a very large asset management uh, group. So Naveen manages about 1.1 trillion of, of assets uh, and obviously sits underneath TIAA with a very large insurance balance sheet. So that would be the, the corporate history of Argmont. And then in terms of what brought you each to, to the firm? Yeah, so look, maybe maybe uh, you know what brought us. Maybe uh, before that, we can we can talk about our background and indeed why we yeah. why we decided to move to Arkmont. So in my case, uh, I started my career in investment banking, uh, and then as the GFC starts, uh, clearly uh, uh, I was quite interested in moving in the buy side, you know, and more you know in the opportunistic side, you know, with more flexible mandates. So I moved, you know, I spent the last 15 years. In in uh, in buy side, you know, credit opportunity uh, funds, and uh, but you know, over the years, you know, uh, when I was in other other funds, clearly I, I saw some drawbacks in 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 being in a sort of special seed funds with you know, uh, I guess a tainted uh, you know effect because you're you know in general private equity do not want to speak to special seed fund, and it was my experience uh, back then, you know, uh, that you know sponsors didn't want really to interact with us because we were seen as you know as the, the bad guys, yeah, um, and that's really why I, I decided to join Arkmont four years ago uh, with uh, with David to launch Capital Solution because definitely, you know, uh, being part of uh, Arkmont was, you know, Arkmont is a blue chip lender in, in, in the UK and in Europe, global, uh, in Europe in general, and private equity have worked with the 
with our direct lending arms. They've done multiple deals with them, and therefore they really see them as a as a as a blue chip lender, as a constructive lender. They've tested them in tougher times. They worked with them. They've seen them acting you know, properly. So therefore, you know, you are part of a group that is much more that is very much seen as constructive, and uh, you know that help us you know on 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 our strategy, which is more focused on complex deals, to you know have a door opened already with the sponsor community. And that was definitely a big change from my previous shops, I guess. And that was really one of the key drivers for me to, to move to Arkmont in early 2020. Yeah, and I would, I would say very much the same thing. So I've, I've spent over 20 years uh, evaluating and investing in middle market businesses uh, across Europe and, and uh, for most of that time, specifically in opportunistic credit. And um, it was also my view. Um, and by the way, Alice and I had, had come across each other in, in the market previously and, and, and did know each other. And I, and I did share that view that um, there was a, a real sourcing opportunity if you get it right, if you can harness the, the depth of, of sponsor and advisory relationships that you have as a, as a constructive player in the market, so that you can open up those same relationships to, to show you the maximum amount of um, higher complexity deals as, as well. Um, so we, we saw a, a great market opportunity coming perhaps not, not as big as, as has actually come to pass um, because truly the, the conditions are, are fantastic. Um, Arkmont had a, a, a fantastic track record al already uh, in, in all of its activities uh, and we were obviously keen to, to add to that. But, but indeed, I think the, the biggest differentiator from our perspective was that sourcing advantage coming from the fact that Arkmont has at this point worked with over 90 private equity funds uh, across Europe in, in more than 350 transactions. Impressive, yeah. So, I guess before we move on, I guess when when you guys had crossed paths before joining, uh, teaming up, was it uh, adversarial? Since you know, if if Alice was always the bad guy, I'm kind of curious. Is it like sort of a, you know, Superman Lex Luthor type of thing, or is it? Um... Not at all. It, it was it was just <laughs> as as friendly competitors, right? L looking at uh, potential deal opportunities where where it might be possible to to, to club up. Um, but it, but it was it was funny because when we when we both started talking to Anthony Fobel, our, our CEO, about the opportunity, um, at least on my side, he was uh, he was describing a uh, a French lady in the special sits market that, that he thought <laughs> could could be an interesting complementary fit. And in my mind, I was going through the the possibilities, but it, I I figured it it could really be no one other than Alice. <laughs> There's not that many French women in, in restructuring. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it probably narrows it down pretty quickly. But uh, so maybe let's continue to lay the groundwork a little bit here. You know, I do want to talk through the platform a little bit before we dive in. Uh, and, and maybe the best way to do that is to start with the rationale that you lay out. Uh, you guys just put out a white paper back in October called uh, Capital Solutions and All Weather Opportunity Set with the typical flair and the headline that you would get from a financial publication. Uh, so maybe the business, as I understand it, has effectively three legs, right? So you, you got the liquidity and refi, uh, secondary market, and a little bit of direct lending. But maybe walk us through, uh, you know, what the platform is and, and why you think sort of having multi-legs to the strategy uh, benefits the firm. Yeah, 
Yeah, so look, uh, maybe let me let me start on that. So indeed, you know, our you know, capital solution fund is really looking at more complex financing and there's three types of transaction we're pursuing. So I think the first one is, uh, you know, what we call specialist lending, which is a sort of complex, the closest to the direct lending you can find. So it's really lending to healthy businesses, performing well, but where there's a complexity and the complexity can be a lot of different things, but it can be, for instance, the industry, you know, clearly industry bit more cyclical industry, for instance, it's not something your traditional lender love. And so that's something we can look at, you know, at the right level of leverage, at the right pricing, you know, think it can be attractive. So that's an example of a specialist lending. It can be also just because you're looking for actually a higher leverage, you're looking for subordinated instruments. So, you know, a PIC or a MAS, for instance, it's something that, again, the traditional lenders will not, I guess, uh, be interested into. Whereas we think, again, at the right pricing, you know, on the, on the resilient business, it can make sense. So that's really specialist lending. And specialist lending, going back to our white paper that we wrote, is very much evergreen. So you don't need a cycle, you don't need a recession because you will always have unloved industry. It's not really related to a, to a, a recession or crisis. It's really related to the fact that you know, uh, you know, traditional lenders tend to like only three or four sectors and uh, the economy is much broader than that, uh, fortunately and unfortunately. Um, so clearly the specialist lending is, as, as we highlighted in the white paper, a, you know, a strategy where you can invest through all cycles. Uh, whereas, you know, um, you know second transaction type is what we call capital solution. Uh, here, it's really very much lending to uh, businesses, good businesses, but have a bad balance sheet. And bad balance sheet being either over-levered or, or because they, they are a bit over-levered and they have a maturity issue. And we can obviously go into more details a bit later, but clearly uh, capital solution is very busy in the current environment because you know you have obviously businesses, as we all know, under big pressure, whether it's on the margin because they obviously have some cost of inflation, whether it's on the consumer demand, whether it's on the rates because the cost of debt has increased significantly for all, all LBOs in general. So capital solution is really helping businesses that are now under pressure and we are seeing a lot of businesses under pressure. You Add to that the fact that you have a lot of businesses that have maturity coming up, and we can uh, uh, expand a bit a bit later. Um, it's really a lot of opportunities that are coming our way, um, and therefore I think capital solution is very much more about uh, you know a tougher, more volatile environment. So indeed, in a recession or in a volatile time, you will see more capital solution. Um, and then the last bit, the third type of transaction is what we call the secondary investment. So you're know, investing at the discount, you know, uh, in loans or bonds. Uh, but always, you know, we're always focused on on the, uh, the mid-cap mid -cap companies. Uh, and also we have a, an advantage in that case that we are, you know, a whitelist lender, uh, i.e. we're always seen as a constructive lender. And therefore, we're one of the few special seed funds that are accepted, you know, as part of the original deals as a potential lender. And indeed, in second Secondary, uh, it's also driven by more volatile environment because you know there will be dislocation when you have volatility in the market, and therefore you know going back to the you know, the, the economy, specialist lending is more about stronger economy and uh, cap capital solution and secondary will be more into volatile time. So obviously that means in reality indeed in, we can invest in all type of weather in strong economies more with specialist lending and in weaker economies with capital solution and secondary investment.
So digging in a little bit, though, on that that white paper and those three pillars that you guys uh, work in, how, how did you guys see in terms of like, can you walk us through how we reach this, um, this, I guess, perfect storm in a way for the capital solutions world in the white paper? You guys kind of lay out how current day and then in the years ahead, you've kind of reached this point where all three approaches really work well. How, how did we get here? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. It's it's really about the uh, accumulation of of topics. Um, uh, so obviously, when we first started, um, very shortly after both of us joined the firm, um, COVID hit. Uh, COVID obviously had pretty dramatic effects on not just the the world but but businesses specifically, uh, and um, required businesses to uh, actually take on more liabilities, right? To 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 um, increase their liquidity to see themselves through that immediate crisis. Um, it it seemed at, at the time somewhat counterintuitive, probably still does, that one of the answers to, to that was actually taking on more debt, right? Um, coming out of 2020, then into 2021, um, the market uh, obviously took on a, a more optimistic uh, angle. Uh, there was significantly um, more more growth being invested in. Um, for us, that meant that we found a number of opportunities to um, you know to, to help grow with with good quality businesses and and uh, kind of do the the healthy deals of of the kind that that Alice spoke about. But it's it's fair to say also that in a low interest rate environment, you know the the debt that many businesses were were taking on um, it worked in a low interest rate environment. It worked less well in a, in a high interest rate environment that um, obviously we're, we we've now fully come into. Uh, in 2022, everything changed again. So the invasion of of Ukraine was was a big catalyst that uh, put the the markets into into a risk off. Uh, position. Uh, banks were left hung with uh, a lot of debt, both in, in Europe and, and in the US that, that they had underwritten for, for distribution to investors. That actually created a, a really interesting opportunity for us to, to try to help uh, banks clear European debt exposure. Um, and, th- and that risk off position has, has really perpetuated. So I think it's still true to say that since uh, early 2022, there hasn't been a single piece of triple C paper uh, issued in 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 Europe in in the leverage loan or, or high yield bond market. So um, you know that the, 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 there was the risk off uh, positioning, um, and clearly many other things have have happened. Um, not least inflation, um, partly coming out uh, uh, as a consequence of the the COVID crisis, uh, but partly also due to uh, again Ukraine related events and and how that that affected the the value of of certain commodities. Uh, and and this is an awful lot for for businesses to internalize. And and unfortunately, when you go back to 2020 and and the the debt that was taken on in 2020 and 2021, that's largely still there. So you've got um, you know the same amount of liabilities that was already growing and and was was arguably already ahead of what it should have been uh, even even before the COVID crisis. Um, at the same time, the cost of that debt has, has increased dramatically. Obviously, you've got uh, the cost of Euribor, Sonia, uh, also US base rates um, at, uh, you know, uh, sort of up to five points uh, difference uh, from, from where you would have been 18 months ago. And for certain companies, that's more than doubling the cost of, of their interest if, you know, if they had a, a margin of, of less than that, which is entirely possible. Um, 
And so all of these things have, have just come together into a, into a perfect storm when, by the way, the, the businesses weren't also able to, to refinance um, for, for large periods of time, right, because of the, the capital markets not being open. And so uh, the, the maturities that uh, Alice alluded to uh, have also been coming closer. Um, so fundamentally, there's just a lot on the plate of the, the CFO now between uh, how the, the fundamentals of, of their business are working, between what they're paying on their debt, the maturities coming, uh, all of that stretch, we think, needs flexible capital to, to help those businesses get through. Gotcha. And I guess looking ahead, uh, like let's say central banks start to cut rates, they become a little bit more dovish there. Is there one particular um, subset of your guys' investing world that you think will um, like outperform in a way uh, out of the three of those? Yeah, look, I think I think in terms of cut rates, uh, definitely, I think, you know, the one that will be less interesting uh, following the cut rates will be secondary, because I think in that case, you you should see an increase in prices in general over, you know, loans and bonds. So that means, you know, it becomes less attractive for us to to invest because there's no more dislo- there's no dislocation at that stage. But I would say what is what will be interesting is as the cut as the rates uh, get cuts, uh, you will have more MA because indeed in in the current environment, as you as you know, you know there's very well, much less uh, volume of MA than for instance we've seen in 22. Obviously, this has been offset in the current environment with refi, as we discussed. Your maturity wall is definitely coming is happening as we speak. But I would say that if you had a cut rate, you would see more MA, and therefore the specialist lending will definitely quite will be very attractive in that case. So maybe to dig in uh, now and teach the legs of the stool a little bit, because uh, I always find this one of the more interesting parts in terms of the actual sort of deployment of the strategy. Uh, you know, maybe starting with first leg, which is a, a liquidity and refinancing. I guess maybe firstly, how do you structure your risk there? Sort of like, is there an initial template that you're looking at in terms of borrower size or credit quality? Uh, you know, are the terms mostly meant as sort of a more of a bridge capital or are they traditional loan or, or are there other features, whether it's collateralization, equity kickers, covenant packages, et cetera, et cetera, that you say, OK, here's where we're starting with. And then depending upon the borrower, maybe you tweak those as you move along in the process. Well, it is an opportunistic strategy. So I'd say that there isn't one single template. I'd say the base product is is really a unitranche. And the base type of company that we're investing in looks a lot like anything else that uh, Arkmont would would invest in also from our direct lending funds. So these are uh, generally speaking, mid to upper mid market sized businesses, uh, typically private equity backed. Um, So we'd be talking EBITDA uh, typically between 10 uh, and, and 50 million euros, probably as a core range, but we absolutely look at look at bigger. Uh, and then the where where exactly we want to sit in the capital structure is very situation specific, and and I suppose the whole point of providing liquidity and refinancing options is is you need to to be able to do it in a format that fits the the needs of of that borrower. Um, it could be a a full refinancing of the capital structure where where we're then coming into a, a senior secured position. It could uh, be providing some junior debt that has the effect of, of then providing proceeds that can be used to repay the existing senior lenders to some extent and, and allow them to get more comfortable with, with their leverage. Um, 
it, uh, it it can, however, also be super senior. So indeed, we've we've done uh, previously um, uh, super senior transactions where where we're actually we we have our, our own unique collateral, um, other other features that that give us actually a better risk profile than than even what what you'd associate with a, a senior secured unit tranche. Um, you know the the tenors are um, uh, I'd say on the on the uh, liquidity and refi side probably closer to to five years um, ordinarily than than seven, um, but but there there is flexibility to do your your standard uh, sort of seven years, um, but I think one of the interesting things and and you alluded to it is irrespective of the maturity. Um, this isn't called a bridge, uh, and indeed we don't really do bridges, but the nature of, of what we're doing is providing the, the company with a bridge in inverted commas to um, you know, a time where they can achieve a, a lower cost of, of capital. And so in general, we expect our, our debt to be repaid quite quickly. Um, there's no reason why the CFO of the business wouldn't be focused on that. Uh, we obviously have call protection um, that, that means that we get to achieve a, a minimum uh, amount of return for our trouble. Um, but typically, we expect to be repaid in in two to three years. So you took you took my follow up questions away from me. So maybe Sorry. we'll just. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Okay, comprehensive answers are always good. Uh, so so yeah, I mean, I think the call protection was sort of the interesting part there in terms of you know, so that paper could go away potentially in six months or a year or whatever else if if the market conditions permit the company to kind of come back. More well, just to be clear, we're, we're not we're not actually talking about six or twelve months of core protection. It's it's typically a, a multiple of that. Okay, so like a so two it, to five, it's it's something that guarantees year. us um, some duration of, of two to three Got years. It. Okay, so it's like a like a five nine call two, which would be pretty common in the high yield market or something. Right. All right. So so I guess maybe turning to private lending. Uh, uh, I guess first and foremost, you know, how do you draw the distinction between the sort of the liquidity provisioning offered in the sort of the liquidity refinancing part of it versus private lending? Like, how are you sort of delineating? Is it just sort of where they are in terms of, or where you are in terms of the the underwriting cycle versus taking out existing capital? You're just providing you know new capital into the market. So look, I think it, uh, we are looking at both, uh, i.e. new LBO and when there's obviously new uh, financing and refinancing uh, in the case of uh, specialist lending. Uh, and we're obviously, we, we're interested in both. Obviously, it depends on where we are in the cycle, because as we just said, you know, in a, in a stronger economy, you might have more new LBOs and therefore, you know, uh, there will be more new LBOs over refinancing. What I think is interesting in the current environment is that you have, indeed, we are at, at the end of a, a wave because, you know, your private debt, you know, as an asset class has really uh, started in, you know, the early 2010s and onwards, and therefore you had sort of quite a big wave of you know, private loans you know, in 2015 to 2018. And obviously these loans are now you know, getting to their maturity. You know, if we take five, seven years, you know, you know, they're all coming to maturity. And these direct lenders that were obviously lending five years ago uh, to certain companies have now changed a bit their strategy. Actually, as the uh, asset class has uh, evolved, you know, initially I think direct lender were open to a lot of sectors, a lot of situations. I think now we've seen them retrenching, focusing more on the vanilla uh, side of the market. So, i.e., very resilient sectors, uh, not interested in cyclical industries, not interested in slightly more complex businesses, and so we are in an interesting uh, 
business uh, of time because you see a lot of direct lender coming to maturity on their existing LBOs and not willing to obviously uh, refinance or you know continue to support the business. And I think that's an interesting feature of our business today is really uh, you know uh, refinancing uh, performing businesses, but maybe in slightly uh, complex industry or slightly complex situation that push the existing lender, the traditional lender in some ways, you know, away because they're not interested in taking this type of risk anymore. And that's definitely a, a big driver of our of the volume growth we've seen in the last year. And I think this is only starting because, you know, as we know, you know, the uh, uh, private class uh, has increased, you know, over the years. And therefore, you know, what we see as maturity coming in 23, 24 is actually a portion, uh, a very small portion of what we're going to see in 24, 25, 26. So obviously it's only only uh, the beginning, I think, of this phenomena, but it's a real, real trend because, you know, if you're a private equity in the current environment, you're not going to sell because this is not the right time for valuation standpoint. So the only option for them is to refinance this uh, maturity, uh, this, these deals that are coming to maturity. And as I said, you know, banks are not there uh, for different reasons direct lender are not interested anymore and therefore they're a bit left with you know the uh, the alternative fund the special seat the, the opportunistic funds and in that market obviously there's different type of players and obviously we're we're extremely well positioned with sponsors because as i as we said earlier they like us they work with us they know our direct lending guys they partner with them and therefore we're we're a natural uh lender for them so I guess, you know, one of the things that sort of comes up in that answer for me, and, and I guess, you know, is there something to which you attribute that retrenching behavior? Is it just sort of the maturity and the size and they don't really need to sort of take the same sort of exposures just because the market has grown and they can kind of go get their return profile somewhere else because rates are higher, et cetera, et cetera? Or is there something, you know, that's just sort of a part of an evolution in that marketplace that's leading the direct lenders away from the more cyclical asset class or the more cyclical sectors. I think it's all of the above. <laughs> no, but so I think I think uh, I think uh, jokes apart. I think there's a bit of of all of it. So indeed, I think the asset class has grown. I think they understand the direct lender have in the past. You know, were sort of creating their their market. So obviously they had to test a bit also, you know, a bit the market. And they I think they've seen that, you know, lending to more complex deals, whether it's complex industries or just complex situation, is sort of a different job that needs different skill sets and different type of people and there and also different type of returns. So I think they understood that and therefore now they're refocusing on maybe the more straightforward vanilla. And I think it's also a requirement from LPs. Uh, you know, I think uh, the LPs in general want you know more specialist, uh, specialized strategies. You know, okay, you know, you know, you have the vanilla direct lender, and then if I want to do a bit more spicy stuff, I might I might invest into the special sit world. But they might, the, the LPs, I think, wants to decide where they put the eggs, I guess. Uh, and indeed, I think you know, in general, the cyclical sectors are are less appealing to direct lenders, and they all tend to focus on three or four industries, which are the education. The healthcare, you know, the software, stuff of things. Yeah. I do think the historical context is is really important for the European direct lending market and how far it's come in a relatively short period of time. Because when Blue Bay private debt was starting out, you were having to explain to private equity funds what mm -hmm. a unitranche was. Uh, and and, in, uh, and <laughs> to some indeed, people still, right? Yeah, that's still well, okay. perhaps, but but the reality is that now. Our investors are very familiar with the asset class. They have mm -hmm. very clear expectations of, of what, what you get from, you know, a, a more vanilla 
direct lending strategy, even if they don't call it that. Uh, and and I, I think that has the tendency of, of then focusing mandates much more as, as the market has matured. So maybe just to sort of wrap up on this part of the business, I guess, trying to get a sense in terms of now, uh, you know, I, the company was recently reported to be involved in sort of the Adavinta buyout, but that was a different part of the business. Within the the capital solution side, like what kind of ch- size checks are you writing? Is there a vast range? Because you talked about sort of the EBITDA reference point being 10 to 50 million dollars there. So I'm just trying to get a sense in terms of when you're deploying capital, uh, is it you know, two to 500 million? Is it more? Is it less? Like what's the sort of like the sweet spot for the strategy, do you think? Yeah, so indeed, Adavinta, that that's clearly a, a massive transaction and has lenders uh, uh, investing checks of, of hundreds of millions. Uh, and that's quite a, a normal thing for our direct lending fund. Our focus is is very much on strategic capital. Uh, and so we're we're looking at, at typically smaller check sizes, and in fact, we'll we'll get out uh, of bed for for relatively uh, small small checks. Uh, so a, a starting amount would be somewhere in the region of of 25 million euros as a as a check size, and then we'll go up to 100 million plus, uh, depending on what we think of the the risk return. Um, you know where where we actually have appetite with it within our fund complex. Uh, but it's it's that kind of um, amount of of strategic capital. Obviously, the facilities themselves could could be bigger. There might be opportunities for for more than one lender, but that that would be the the piece that we would typically invest. And then in terms of that risk return piece that you alluded to there, uh, you know, smaller issuers, less liquidity tends to mean higher premiums. I, I won't make the assumption that that's the case here, but I assume that's the case here. Well, we're, we're, um, <laughs> obviously, the, the genesis of, of um, our, our sub-business within Arcmont was to make higher returns from, from more complexity. So indeed, we're always looking for um, a, a premium of, of really a few hundred basis points above maybe what a, a typical unitron interesting so so maybe shifting gears to the, to the last of the stool, legs of the stool so secondary pretty straightforward market uh that most people are going to be sort of familiar with because that's sort of what most people trade but uh you know just being in the market uh, when prices become stressed i guess how do you think about this sort of comparative skill set skill set between sourcing deals and going out there and working uh directly with companies to to kind of provide that you know, emergency or special situation type financing relative to being in the secondary market and sourcing liquidity, uh, you know, whether it's in corporates or loans or something like that. Like, is, do you think that those two skill sets are, are largely comparable? And I guess maybe it's even just on the desk, are you then sort of positioning, I'm assuming you have traders or you can leverage traders elsewhere in the organization to, to execute that part of the strategy? Yeah, look, um, it's an interesting one. So secondary indeed is something that our direct lending is not at all doing. So it's really something we brought as part of Capital Solution. And and obviously that's that's also some of our background, you know, with David and myself, we were doing secondary in, uh, you know, for the last 15, 20 years as well in, in our previous shops. Um, so I sourcing is definitely done within within the capital solution team as we told you earlier you know we're definitely leveraging the direct lending on the sourcing with the classic private equity community but indeed on the secondary the sourcing is done within within our team uh, and therefore but you know that's something we we we, we can do easily and we've built you know, over the last four years you know so we we speak with all the desk you know uh, we uh, we we definitely have uh, access to all uh, all workers and we have a very good view on on, on what is happening on the market 
market. Um, and, and don't forget that on secondary, we're not going to invest in any type of transactions. You know, we are very much focusing our you know, on certain type of you know uh, bespoke or under the radar transactions. So most of what we do on the secondary is more the mid caps. So you know, we would uh, tend to invest in capital structure that are a couple of hundreds up to maybe a billion. But we're not talking billions of, of of capital structure, but more a few hundreds. So definitely the true mid caps. And and because we feel that you know it's a, a, a part of the market that is a bit untapped by a lot of our competitors because indeed a lot of the special seed funds are willing to invest at least 100 million you know, in, a, in a position and that means they go into the large capital structure, the mega capital structure and therefore in this case there's much more competition whereas we tend to focus on the smaller ones and on the smaller ones we, you know, if you think about okay you're going to invest in a capital structure that is 400 million most of the time it doesn't trade that much you know it's quite you know illiquid um so we uh, we obviously know who are the investors in general so we tend to in you know through brokers you know speak directly to the uh, to the uh, uh, lenders in the syndicate and i think where we have here an advantage is because our direct lender invests also on in the mid caps we tend to see the same companies you know coming from one side to another so often you know the companies that you can see in second Secondary are often companies that have come to our direct lender a few years back as a potential unit charge. So you can definitely, you know, use, you know, and leverage the uh, the the. The, the, the information they got the uh, the knowledge they built here on the second on the on the second uh, on the direct lending uh, for our own analysis and also don't forget that a lot of what we do is sponsor driven and we use where we the sponsors are the same on the transaction that my direct lending looked at on the primary then we're looking at on the secondary and we also use that relationship you know to obviously build our due diligence you know as we speak you know to the sponsor before we enter a, a situation um, so I would say definitely we we still have a lot of a, uh, you know, differentiated factors thanks to our direct lending through the relationship with the sponsors through the fact that we are definitely focusing on the more on the smaller capital structure. And also the last aspect, which I think is key in Europe and obviously in the US is very different. It's that you have these whitelist lenders, uh, which uh, I'm not sure if the audience is familiar with that, but you know, it's really a very much European concept because it's a concept where there's a new deal that is being placed by a sponsor. They put together a list of the friendly lenders that will be able to become a lender of record in the future uh, of the situation. So if somebody in the syndicate wants to sell, they can really only sell to the lenders in this whitelist and fortunately we we are always part of this uh, whitelist because we're we're friendly and and close to the sponsor community uh, but it's not the case for most of our competitors so that's a real advantage because indeed if you have a seller there's only few people they they can sell to in reality so that uh, limit a bit the competitive space obviously it's, it's only the case for loans if you're looking at bonds you know which obviously a lot of uh, special seed funds are looking at then in this case you don't have whitelist and therefore we don't have our advantage but you know the loan uh, obviously market is quite large and that's our main focus and therefore we have this uh, great advantage i guess uh, you know a couple of questions that come up there one you know obviously building the right position size can be a little bit more complicated in that instance but i also want to sort of focus in on uh you know the fact that you guys are so friendly but the credit space isn't you know, because one of the things that we've seen, certainly that we've seen increasingly over the last few years, and I think when we had talked prior, 
you know, you guys noted sort of the the avoidance of sort of those loan to own situations, you know, kind of being in a position to basically either take equity or to be part of a restructuring or that sort of thing. But within the credit space more generally, even before you get to that tranche, we've seen a lot more competition between creditor and lending groups and that sort of thing. So I guess, you know, when you're getting involved in the secondary side, is the goal to sort of avoid those situations and just maybe look for the proverbial babies in the bathwater when markets are dislocated? Or are you comfortable sort of taking a side in those sort of what they call creditor on creditor valuation or, or positioning fights? Yeah, so it, it all comes down to what is your your base case. And our base case is um, this is a, a business that will uh, show a strong recovery uh you know the the market will will get more comfortable with the credit and we will pull to par so fundamentally what we're looking for is those pull to par opportunities and our base case would not be um that that lenders need to need to te- uh, step in to take the keys that's a, a legitimate strategy i'm i'm sure for some players it's, it's just not our strategy so i guess lastly uh you know just in terms of leverage in terms of a, do you deploy it, uh, uh, you know, within your strategy overall, or is the sort of current return environment, uh, you know, sufficient enough that you don't need to go that route? And then does your ability to access leverage or your desire to access leverage change should rates come down and sort of the return opportunity diminish? So we are an unlevered strategy, so we do not use leverage in general. So we see that doesn't affect us in any ways, and uh, you know we don't think we should you know take leverage because indeed the, the overall returns we expect on the strategy are quite high already. I want to change gears a little bit here, just getting into the the regional diversification that you guys see. Can you can you just walk us through, you know, how you impro- approach investing across the European region and. I mean, on the surface, from from my perspective, I, I would assume that there's a lot of complexity and diversification in terms of working through those various regions that you guys are operating in. Absolutely. I, I think one of the fascinating things about Europe is is the fact that it isn't just one place, one jurisdiction. There are multiple jurisdictions, uh, market norms, obviously languages and geographical barriers that that actually can can be a positive from the point of view of competitive positions for businesses um so it it is at best a a federation of uh of of countries and you need to be uh experts in in each specific jurisdiction um so we obviously like being a a pan-european specialist you know, our, our mandate uh, uh, is able to invest across Europe. Really, for us, that that means Western Europe, uh, and um, we love having this deep bench of um, over 40 investment professionals uh, within Arcmont, most of whom are organised by uh, geography, and so are locals uh, steeped in in the language, but more importantly, the the jurisdiction. And um, you know, typically, all they've done their whole career is is to to think about um, how that jurisdiction works from a from a lender perspective, how best to protect your your position, um, and frankly, how you mitigate against uh, uh, jurisdictions uh, in the spectrum that that would be less creditor friendly. So, how about when it comes to you know assessing risk adjusted returns across those various uh, sovereigns and, and geopolitical regions? Like, are are you seeing it's pretty similar in terms of the, those risk adjusted returns that you guys are getting, or are there areas where you see a little bit more differentiation? 
Yeah, look, I, th I think I would say the returns are, are generally pretty similar. Um, how you adjust for that risk, I think, is is not not a, a an easy thing to to say, and and it's also a, a mix of art and science, right? Because um, you you can't just, for example, apply a a blanket discount to a French deal on on the basis that it's a a, a more challenging jurisdiction for lenders, because uh, for one thing there might be some good mitigants structurally um, to the jurisdiction. Um, so, you know, as, as one example that, that some of your uh, listeners will be familiar with, there's, there's the so-called double Luxco, um, where if you're lending to a French business, you can actually locate uh, the borrower in, in Luxembourg in, in a structure that then uh, takes any uh, putative uh, restructuring moves out of the French jurisdiction into a more creditor friendly. So that's just one example of, of how you might mitigate the risk. But as, as we're thinking about risk, it, it's not just thinking about procedural steps and, and what specifically you would do in, in the downside, but it's also how the business looks out of the gates, right? It's, it's going to be a different question. Um, do you want to uh, invest in, a, in a, a French business that is very highly levered and you know, has a, a potential liquidity need? versus one that is um, you know, fundamentally less levered and, and brings other advantages. Or indeed, it's, it's a, a more qualitative question of you know, what's, what's the sector, or indeed, once you get into the specifics of the, of the credit, um, you know, just how much do we, do we like this specific business? So I, I think, obviously, our, our whole task is, uh, is assessing risk and return, but, but there, there isn't just one dimension to that. And I think what is interesting, Sam, as well, is that because we invest you know, across all these countries, we, we look at it on the relative value as well. Um, and it's true that also you see, you know, economies are evolving differently. So, you you know, for instance, currently you see quite an influx of opportunities coming from the Nordics because, you know, clearly a Nordic economy has been, uh, you know, a bit more under, more challenged than some of other European countries. Obviously, UK has been a big theme for us historically of Brexit because of uh, many, many reasons. So clearly there was more opportunities so but indeed you know the, the goal of, and, and the aim of our strategy is to be agile you know across you know all spectrum and geography is one of them uh, because that means indeed you know if there's more attractive opportunities you know in the nordics you know currently maybe we'll spend more time in the nordics and then next year maybe it will be more germany because you know germany is challenged as well so it really is very much you know we're following the flow of opportuni opportunities we looked at all you know countries industries on a relative value relative value basis and depending on where we feel is the best risk return balance we obviously invest in that we don't need to invest you know only you know only in a one country we obviously we're quite flexible in our mandate and obviously that gives us the opportunity to move around and to be a bit more nimble and agile but i guess uh, more importantly does it bother you that when david's talking about all the the negative things about <laughs> investing in europe he's always talking about france yeah, because he, does, he doesn't speak French. That's the issue. <laughs> no, no, but look, of course, you know, France is a tougher, it's tougher jurisdiction. So is Italy, so is Spain, you know, south of Europe in general is more challenging. But we know that we go with open eyes. And uh, indeed, as David said, we just structure around it. But I think it's an advantage because if you have the, the background, the restructuring expertise in that in that special uh, jurisdictions, you have an advantage because there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, funds that are not going into these jurisdictions 
jurisdiction because they look difficult from the outside. But in reality, if you understand them well, and if you understand well the legal framework, there's actually nice opportunities and therefore less competition. So I'm glad when David says that because it might scare some, some of our competitors. <laughs> but Noel, equally, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that you didn't pick up Alice because she's already beaten up on the UK, the Nordics, Germany. <laughs> no mention of France whatsoever. France is doing very well. <laughs> Uh, I, I guess you know one of the questions that comes up out of that is is just on the currency exposure side. Are you striking everything? I'm, I'm assuming in euro, but but you know maybe not. Yeah, so uh, we we think about life in in euro terms typically. Um, uh, actually, we give investors multiple currency options, uh, and then we we hedge currency back to to whatever the the investor's resident currency is um, so say it's it euro is is the the, the base currency um, we can lend in any major european currency and indeed or any major currency full stop indeed we do and then um, you know really in line with with industry practice we're then fully hedging the the principal on a on a rolling basis uh, so that you're delivering uh, you know, uh, credit uh, returns, and you're you're not taking currency risk. Interesting. So I guess uh, maybe changing gears once again. Uh, one of the things that I'm always curious about, uh, you know, understanding with the different shops and stuff like that, is in terms of what that investment committee process looks like. Uh, I think it's even more uh, interesting from your perspective, just given the diversification of the geographies and the different strategy sets. So I guess. Help me understand in terms of what the due diligence looks like, uh, what kind of, you know, you'd reference sort of the 40 professionals sort of scattered about, uh, you know, what kind of regional expertise you need uh, and those sorts of things. And, and, so, and then when you all sort of come to the table and say, are we going to make this investment or here's three possible investments, which one do we want? I guess trying to understand what that process looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So our investment process is quite long. Huh? It's we're talking months of you know, due diligence in general. So it's definitely not uh, a very quick one, you know, and mostly on the on, on the secondary, it's a bit quicker, as you can imagine. But on the primary side, which is, you know, vast majority of our of our investment is really months of due diligence. And I think the idea you know, of our process, first of all, we when we join in with uh, with David four years ago, we thought about, okay, should we uh, do a different process than what the direct lending, should we follow a different process than our direct lending has been following for the last you know, 10 years? Um, and we looked at their process too, and we tested them, we challenged them, and we felt actually they're very robust. Obviously, we've seen them over over a decade, you know, it's, it's done well. So so we actually decided to follow the same process as our direct lending. Um, obviously, we do uh, deeper, more you know, deeper due diligence. As you know, we tend to look at more complex deals without a doubt. But we tend to follow the same exact investment process, you know, which is uh, in general a two-stage IC process, uh, which is in a way uh, a, a sort of you know, if you take an analogy of peeling in the onion. So we do little by little, and then uh, you know, we do more and more work, and we kill it, you know, kill deals, you know, over over you know, different stage of uh, due diligence if we feel that you know, it's not going the right direction. But I would say in terms of you know 
due diligence process, you know, we first of all we get access to a lot of data, uh, and we get access to through different sources. So that's obviously most of the time it's private a private equity owned. So that means access to uh, due diligence reports that are your know, market to a DD report, a financials report, legal report, tax report, environmental reports, all of that, and obviously financials information. So that's obviously the classic stuff you get, you know, as in a direct lending uh, deal. Uh, but on top of that, we obviously triangulate, you know, with additional source of information. So, i.e., you know, we speak with uh, ex-managers, we speak with competitors, we speak with suppliers, we speak with clients uh, to understand a bit better the business from a less biased view than the sponsor that is buying the business or that is refinancing the business. So, um, so for sure that, and that's, you know, obviously what is helpful is to be part of our uh, ArcMont because with an ArcMont, as I said, we have access to a lot of information that we've, you know, we pulled over the years, you know, either it's a you know, competitor we looked at, either, or it could be, a, you know, the co same company that my direct lending looked at a few years back. So we can use this extra information that we get from our direct lending site. And so we have access to a lot of information and obviously we go through uh, different analysis, uh, different stage of information of, 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 of uh, IC investment committees uh, decisions. So normally we have two stages. So first stage where we discussed uh, uh, the details of the of the deal and with the um, it's a let's say 10 to 15 page memos and then we decide whether whether the IC likes it enough for us to do a more thorough due diligence at the second stage. Um, and and we we tend to go through two ICs actually in reality because we we have our capital solution ICs, but at the same time we have the direct lending IC that is sitting at the same IC. So we get double votes if you want. We have the capital solution that votes and also the direct lending. But that's helpful because in general, that means you have instead of having five people challenging you, challenging you in your deal, you actually have 25 or even 40 people because all of the deal teams, all the investment team is sitting at these meetings. So you have 40 people asking you tough questions on the deals, on why uh, why this this is a trend, why where where are the risks, etc. So you have really 40 smart people challenging you, uh, in 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 and helping you in obviously asking you the right question, and they see it from a different perspective because indeed they might have looked at similar business that didn't go well or went well, but indeed they can bring the insight into your deal. So I think that's quite helpful. So I think that's where you know the direct lending also brings uh, input and challenge us you know, on, on our deals. Um, is, is there a sense of what the, the acceptance rate is then? That sounds like uh, how, many, how many companies actually make it through that gauntlet? Yeah, so in our case, it's less than 5%. So indeed, you know, you need to kiss a lot of frogs to find the prince. Um, so that's, that's, but that's the nature of our business, because when you think about it, if you take a step back, what we do is looking at more complex deals, the, the deals that naturally the traditional lenders do not want to look at because they look complex from the outside world. So naturally you have a, a like a low win rate because indeed a lot of them, as you go through your due diligence, as I you know, as you look at all the DD reports, you speak to the consultants, etc., you found out that you're not very excited about it or you feel that there's risks that are too high and there are not maybe no real mitigants to it. So you just obviously stop doing the work and and you move to another transaction. So naturally we we kill a lot of deals. Uh, uh, but obviously, uh, that's just the way our, I guess, business works. So I want to dig in here a bit on the competitive landscape side of things. And 
I feel like, you know, you see headlines on a daily basis almost where some different firms are getting into various areas of the private credit world. And I think, David, you even alluded to this earlier, just in terms of uh, people getting a little bit more up to date on on some of the, the workings of your guys' world. What do you what do you think distinguishes Arkmont from the rest of the players in the space, uh, especially in the European side of the, the pond, I guess? Yeah, well, we've already talked about uh, a few of the distinguishing features, but but I think fundamentally we're coming at uh, our capital solutions area of the market from uh, the the DNA of a of a direct lender with all of those embedded uh, relationships and 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 credit history, and and that is fundamentally uh, our differentiation and and what drives uh, also our, our sourcing and, and our general behaviour. What what I still find interesting is that there's actually relatively few uh, uh, teams that that are structured in that way. Firstly, coming from coming at capital solutions from the the direct lending heritage, but also doing that in well the, the way we do it is we do it without silos. So um, you know we sit on on one floor. There's no there's no walls um, I, either virtual or, or or physical between us, and it means that there's a a constant fluidity across the business. If someone in the German team is looking at something that started as as a, a direct lending transaction and then it became clear that uh, it's actually more complex than that, then there's a very natural ability for for that to be um, you know passed a, across in in the organisation to to the right people. Uh, and so we think that uh, being being structured in that way, as well as giving us uh, just a, a positioning that that we think um, you know companies and, and sponsors actually like, it's also the way that we maximise our, our deal flow. As I say, curiously, there aren't that many people who who do it. Um, you know, there there are um, there there are more. Uh, uh, special sits or, or capital solutions uh, businesses that are somehow in the same organization uh, as as a direct lending business, but actually focusing on the same businesses, same clients, and doing it in a in a non siloed way. Uh, that that's still a, a relative rarity. And have you seen, you know, with that growth, I guess across? It sounds like maybe you guys are a little bit more insulated, but have you seen? that growth kind of eat away in a way at the at the return that you guys see for from your investments no on the contrary i think i think the what we've seen in the last year with uh, you know with all the volatility we've seen and you know the, the rates i think we've seen an increase in our uh, in our returns in general just not not just about the rates of course we we got the rates and we didn't get any pressure on margin in reality so obviously the rates increase was definitely helpful from that standpoint but i think you know i think we've seen as i as i said earlier retrenching of the traditional lenders you know whether it's the banks or the direct lender really Help us because indeed you're only left with you know alternative funds and and within the alternative funds you have the distress funds the loan to earn funds that you know sponsors do not want to work with and then you have the constructive funds and there's not that many as we said constructive funds in Europe that means really very few players that can tackle the complexity and there and god knows there's a lot of complexity in the current environment so you have a lot of flow of opportunities and very few people that are equipped for that complexity in a constructive way so reality sponsor community have very few uh, counterparties it can speak to and therefore you know the the, the, the sh there's been a shift of power towards us uh, versus you know the, the the sponsors as as we've seen a few years back and therefore now i think sponsors are definitely open to higher margins 
uh, better documentations, uh, and therefore we get better pricing overall. We get better docs, and in general, we as we see a lot of opportunities, we can be more selective. So to the you know the five percent I was referring to, I would say in the current environments is way below five percent because we see so much more opportunities that we can be more selective. So I think I think the the current environment is extremely uh, beneficial for us from all that these points. So I guess uh, I want to stay mindful of time here. So maybe we wrap. We are saving the best for last because I know this is the topic you guys most want to talk about, regulation. So <laughs> Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> so, <laughs> so obviously, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's only more complex, uh, you know, for, for you guys over there because you're going to have the UK, the EU, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we've had recent noises out of both of those marketplaces you know, in terms of how they're thinking about the, the growth in the private credit. Maybe this is a little more adjacent to you guys, but I guess, how do you think about sort of the outlook for regulation and sort of this desire, uh, you know, and it seems to be coming mostly from people that aren't involved in the space for like added transparency? Yeah, I, I think um, we're, we're quite optimistic in that uh, clearly regulators will, will ask for, for whatever they, they think is, is justified. Um, but fundamentally, we, we think that regulators should not be concerned ab about private credit. I mean, at, at its root, um, the, the market has transitioned from a banked market, right, where banks are fundamentally massive users of, of leverage inherently in their balance sheet to a, a, um, a direct lending market where the leverage is, is anything between zero and, and a little bit. Um, but uh, you know, if, if people are worried about systemic risk, I, I, I really think they, they shouldn't be. Um, this is a, this is a, 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 you know, a, a well-structured uh, approach to, to lending. It's, as, as we said, not very dependent on, on, on leverage. It's long-term capital. Uh, it's it's long-term capital being invested by stable, consistent teams who have the the right incentives in in place to um, you know to act appropriately and and to have staying power in in their industry in their company. So frankly, I I I don't see the concern. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of a familiar refrain that we've gotten. I guess you know one of the things that sort of comes up to me is is that you know the understanding of the asset class seems imperfect uh you know when you read a lot of different viewpoints and that sort of thing so i guess uh you know are there sort of areas and, and i guess maybe you alluded to it uh, partly with the systemic risk or non-systemic risk dynamic but are there other areas that you think where there's common misunderstandings in terms of what the business actually is i i think that probably is because if if you if you don't explain uh, what what you mean by direct lending or private credit, you might, for example, think that it somehow involves consumer lending, right? There's there's nothing in the name that uh, that 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 rules that out. So I, I think you you definitely have to define your terms, and and I suppose on some level the uh, the private credit industry um, uh, it, it's it's easy to misunderstand just because it is these days so big and and so diverse. Uh, you know, and there would be people who lend to uh, consumer lending platforms, for example. We we don't do that typically, but um, you know there there are parties that do. But if if you I think if you narrow in the the, the definition and and you focus on you know at least our area of the market where you're lending to to corporates. They're, they're mature 
professional institutionally owned corporates. Uh, and I think that piece is is also interesting. It's uh, as well because we're actually not talking about the the whole economy. You know, we're we're really for the for the most part talking about private equity backed businesses, which is obviously just a, a subset of the economy. Um, you know, I, I think if you think about it in in those terms, it's it's hard to see how um, you know the the growth of private credit is is anything other than a than a positive, stabilizing diversifying factor for, for sources of funding to the middle market. So that, I guess, uh, brings up a question that uh, I wasn't intending to ask, but I'm going to ask just because you, you kind of made a statement that alludes to it. So one of the questions that that sort of always emerges to me uh, and that I've been thinking about uh, recently in terms of, you know, the ability of private credit to sort of, as, as you referenced, uh, stabilize, right? Sort of, does it have an impact of, of sort of maybe extending the credit cycle or mitigating parts of the credit cycle. I think we've seen a little bit of that in the last couple of years as, as pri- traditional primary markets have been relatively shut uh, and private credit has been able to get uh, some deals done that might otherwise have struggled to get done. Uh, and then does that have an impact, do you think, ultimately, uh, you know, for the risk premium that's required in the marketplace? Uh so look, I think uh, I'm not sure I, I understand fully your question, but but let me I mean let me start and answer, and you tell me if I'm going the right direction. But so <laughs> so look, I I think clearly yes, indeed we uh, you know I think the private lenders definitely supported the the liquid market because uh, the larger companies you know in the last you know year and a half uh, as indeed a syndicated market and the, the banks were definitely absent. Uh, so, though you know, it's, it's to us, it felt like it was a interesting time. You know, we're obviously not. Uh, you know, this is not core strategy of our direct lending or our fund. But obviously, this was an opportunity that we've seen in the market for the last eighteen months. We definitely we uh, we stepped in into it, whether it's capital solution or the direct lending. We definitely uh, landed to uh, larger businesses because these businesses definitely did not have access to to uh, to the traditional uh, primary liquid market. Uh, um, this is this going away? If uh, I think as of now, the, mar- the, the banks are still very quite prudent about you know lending. They are not taking much risk. They are opening you know themselves to a more you know high quality businesses definitely. So I think that side is sort of maybe disappearing on, on the, from our direct lending side. But you know on on the more complex end, definitely the banks do not have appetite anymore. And as David alluded at the beginning, and I think it's always striking is you haven't. Seen seen any issue with a triple C rating since January 22. And you, when you speak to syndication team, they definitely have no interest whatsoever in going into the more complex. And as of now, so obviously, look, who knows where they will be in six months time. But as of now, the complex uh, liquid market is unlikely to come back. So that means this opportunity is still there for us. But you know, in general, in any case, a lot of our businesses is, is about mid-caps liquids. So it's an opportunity, the liquid market, the absence of liquid market, but it's it's not the only driver of growth for us. Interesting. Well, that's uh, that's really great. So, uh, I guess that sort of brings us to the end of, of the podcast. So, Alice, David, I really want to thank you both for taking the time. You know, it's definitely been a pretty fascinating conversation. Uh, we don't get to talk a lot about the European market on the U.S. edition of Credit Crunch, but. Uh, To our listeners, Sam and I would like to uh, wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season. Uh, You know, we will be back one more time before the year is out. But until then, this has been Credit Crunch.